Hello there on this Friday, November 27th, uh, 2015. My name is Luke Thomas, and this is the weekly promotional malpractice live chat. Thank you so much for joining me uh, on this Black Friday, hashtag Black Friday. Some of you, I'm assuming, are going to watch this after the fact. Some of you, I'm assuming, are, you know, <laughs> letting your uh, knuckle game fly in the aisles of some Walmart or Target reaching for a 32-inch Vizio you probably don't even really need. And I'm going to watch that later on YouTube, and I'm going to enjoy every bit of it. Uh, today on the podcast, we're going to talk about John Jones and his recent interview, his comeback interview I thought was kind of very, kind of very interesting. I mean, unbelievably interesting, but for all kinds of different reasons. Um, there are some fights tomorrow on Fight Pass, UFC uh, Fight Night 79, Ben Henderson's last contract, our last fight on his contract. Um, very interesting and a tough fight against Jorge Masvidal. So um, quite a bit going on, actually, even in a you know relatively quiet weekend, given the uh, American holiday that it is. So thank you so much for joining me. If you'd be so kind, give us a thumbs up. Uh, let folks know you're watching. Share this somewhere on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, Google+, you know, Snapchat, whatever the hell you can do to help spread the word on social media. That'd be great. Uh, email this to somebody, share the link, do what you can. I really appreciate it. And of course the thumbs up are appreciated as well. Um, let's see any housekeeping notes. I'm trying to think of with the t-shirt. No spoke to the t-shirt guy this week via email, but no new updates just yet. Still working some things out. So we'll get to that. Um, yeah, that's about it. Oh, and, uh, I've been drinking this and the phrase is Polar bear. Make of that what you will. Um, hope everyone had a nice Thanksgiving. Mine was good. I drove about a couple hours from here to see my brother and my sister and my dad. Had my in-laws. Had some good food. My, my uh, brother and my sister own a restaurant. Um, they're not chefs, but they can cook really well. And so uh, I'm very lucky in that regard. So we had really good food. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah, well, good eats, good booze. You know your boy boozed on a holiday. Um, lots to enjoy. So I hope yours was good. I hope everyone had a good time. I actually took part in a Black Friday deal, but only on Amazon.com. In D.C., where I live, they have same-day delivery, so I bought myself a brand-new Kindle. It was on sale. Why not? All right. With that out of the way, let's get to some of these questions if we can. You know how this works, 90 minutes, questions that turn green in the comments get uh, priority, but not exclusivity. And of course, you can use the hashtag chat wrappers to uh, ask me a question on Twitter. All right, here we go. First question, the body types for effective grappling. Luke, I was very impressed with how well Neil Magny was able to control and out-wrestle Kelvin Gastelum throughout the majority of their bout on Saturday night. It seemed evident that the length of Magny's limbs along with the leverage he was able to generate, was highly detrimental to an overwhelming Kelvin, who is an excellent grappler in his own right. Most of the high-level wrestlers in MMA tend to have very short, stocky builds, um, such as Daniel Cormier, Cain Velasquez, Dan Henderson, Johnny Hendricks, and so forth. It's somewhat rare, however, to see a dominant wrestler with a tall, lanky frame who is able to consistently outgrapple shorter and stronger competition. Jones is one of the only tall wrestlers who effectively outgrapples his opponents, as it gives him reach for more control when his hands are clasped together. Similar to Jones, Magny's arm length allowed him to repeatedly drive Kelvin to the ground with double leg and body lock takedowns once his hands were clasped. Um, do tall grapplers like you wrote elite? I'm not sure if I agree that they're elite, but 
Do tall grapplers like John Jones almost always have more advantages with takedowns, cage control, mat control, and submission ability over shorter elite grapplers of the same skill? This is a very interesting question, something I've thought a lot about. Uh, I'm pretty tall. I'm not lanky and you know rail thin like uh, Jones will, or Jones used to be, or Magni is now. But I am tall. I have long arms and I have long legs. So this is something that's like I've thought a lot about actually. Um, it really depends, man. There's not a clear-cut answer here. The few things I would say about it are, number one, a shorter wrestler like Chad Mendez, he's probably not going to have a great triangle. He's really probably not going to have much of a guard game to begin with. I mean, I bet he has attacks from, like, Butterfly um, because, you know, you're digging underhooks there. He's always going to want an underhook. He's always going to want to off-balance you. He's really not going to, like, frame for an armbar or spin for an omoplata or try and play deep half. He's going to want to get you to one side to give him space to go um, in a number of different directions. That's really kind of how that's going to work. And while that may limit his submission game, the submissions that they're going to be good at, head and arm chokes, chokes generally, uh, guillotines, you know, it's not coincidental to me that guys like Joseph Benavidez, Uriah Faber, all those team alpha male guys, Chad Mendez, they have phenomenal guillotines, right? Because it feeds right into their existing skill sets, their body types. They can get compact. They can squeeze hard. Um, they can get their even though they're even though they're built muscular, they can still they can still drive their arms in um, pretty deep. You look at a grappler like you didn't mention him here. This is a grappler I would call elite that fits your body type. Charles Oliveira, right? That's a long, lanky guy who's got phenomenal grappling. I mean, once he wraps your head, the I mean, just how deep he can go with the hand. Um, with Darces, he can go deep. You know, some of the more uh, bizarre varieties he's able to lock up from guard like he did against Hatsuhiyoki. You know, these are just not available to guys with the body types. <coughs> Excuse me. Of a... Um, you know, a team alpha male guy. They just, they're not going to have that same kind of submission repertoire, you know? So, so let's be clear about that. Um, so here's what I would say, like body type will depend on what you can do. You can still be elite by being minimal. If what you do is very, very powerful, like the guys who have good takedowns. One of the things that's hard about being a Charles Oliveira type, John Jones being the exception, really hard to change levels on guys. If you're really tall, you have to, you have to get your hips below theirs. Uh, and that can be tall because you really got to get down low depending on how big you actually are. Requires a lot of leg strength, requires a lot of good timing, great technique, obviously. One problem with being tall, easy for guys to pummel in on you. You know, even if you get a deep clasp and you're pulling here, you got to be really, you got to be really um, diligent about closing off the space. If you're short and compact, it's harder to get your hands in to re-pummel. That can be a big problem. And I've mentioned this before with Neil Magny, right? You get a guy like Neil Magny. Neil Magny, to me, is much better. And this is the case for John Jones, too, in terms of the grappling. We've never really seen John Jones out-grappled, so it's not all that relevant for him. But what I would say is, for the lanky guys, unless you have a sick guard like Charles Oliveira, it's much better to be offensive on top. Because then you can get your arms really deep in for chokes behind the head for a head and arm triangle. You can get darces if they try to like go to a side on you. Um, you can just really go real far underneath with your arms when that happens. But when you're like Neil Magny and your guard is good, but not like elite like Oliveira, I mentioned this before, you get your knee away from your chest and you've created a giant opening. And it's harder for you to reclose that space than it is for them to occupy it. 
That's a big problem with lanky grapplers. There are lanky grapplers out there who really know how to use their length. They're really good at not getting outstretched. But generally speaking, if you look at the best grapplers out there, they look like, I mean, Michael Phelps is not the best example because he's long and lanky too, but they look kind of like slightly, slightly, slightly more compact um, swimmers. Like to me, Jacare has like the perfect build and he's a sick athlete anyway. But that kind of thing where, yes, they have length, they can do the triangles, they can do the omoplatas, they can invert, they can go deep half, they can do all those kinds of mobility uh, exercises, they can they can really contort their body in that way. At the same time, they can out-wrestle, they can scramble, um, they can take the back. You know, he's got just enough leg length to take the back. I think some of the shorter guys have a problem with that. Obviously, Charles Oliveira is going to have it really, really well. Charles Oliveira doesn't also, like, a real lanky, lean guy like that is just not going to have the same physicality. Again, John Jones notwithstanding. He seems to be this, like, outlier among outliers. But generally speaking, we see a really tall, lean, lanky guy. They pose a set of problems, but I often find they can be out-muscled. I often find they leave big gaps um, with their defensive discipline. Again, the biggest one being knees to the chest, really keeping everything in tight. And it's just hard for them because they want to use that length. They can touch you far away. They know that. And they often leave a lot of exposure, a lot of spaces for smaller, quicker guys uh, or guys who might be relatively the same size but thicker to just to just take advantage of. And you get a guy like Neil Magny, again, he's a very talented grappler, but you get a guy, you know, his height, but maybe a, like a light heavyweight. And again, you're going to say, well, a light heavyweight versus Neil Magny. But let's say Neil's even a better grappler. Still, that light heavyweight if he's got enough ability and he can occupy that space, pull the foot out, get in between, once he gets the side control, he's just going to be a big handful. So I think the lankiness is better, unless you have a really good guard, it's better to be on top, passing, that kind of thing. I really, I firmly believe that. It's better to be going for the takedown than trying to fight it off. Oh, well, I could dig deep with your underhook. Yeah, but you can get re-pummeled on very easily. And then you bring someone's base together, you know, because they're long and lanky. They don't have quite have that base to sit things apart. You bring their feet together. That's bad, man. That's when your balance goes. So, um, you know, again, I, I think longer and leaner is better, but there's a point where if you're losing physicality for length, that's to me diminishing returns. All right. Someone says here, as a Muay Thai fighter myself, I cannot tell you, excuse me, I can tell you how hard it is to strike with a lanky guy in your same weight class. They have literally double the skeletal defenses and present a smaller target. The only thing they lack is punching power. I'll take him at his word. Uh, okay, here we go. What did you think of the John Jones interview with Ariel? Um, I'm actually amazed he could perform at the level he did and not prepare for other fighters with his drinking and drug use. All right. So there's a lot to get to with this one. Um, I'm not even sure where to start. Let me just ask a question of everyone. Like, I'm glad we went out there and did it. I thought Ariel's interview was phenomenal. I do think there is a lot to take from it. For me, the most interesting stuff he said was not so much about his lifestyle. Cause if you were in MMA media, you kind of always heard those rumors. Um, and people always like, why don't you publish them? Well, because they're rumors. I mean, you hear them, but no one ever goes on the record about them, you know. Um, so you can't ever, like, publish it. And what are you going to publish? John Jones got drunk. I mean, okay, that's not, that's not necessarily news. But anyway, no one ever talks on the record about it. But, you, I mean, trust me, you've been hearing these stories if you're in media for a long time. This is not new. I mean, I heard a story about before the Matt Yushchenko fight. You just won't even believe. 
But again, no one will go on the record for it. So, um, the most interesting stuff to me that he said was about the UFC. I thought that really was by far the only thing I could reliably. If you had to ask, if okay, if someone had told you he was lying about everything except one topic, what would it be? Now, maybe you have a different perspective, but for me, it's it's the UFC stuff. He seemed to be uh, asserting his dominance as a drawing power, as a fighter he knew the UFC needed, as a guy who felt like he'd been wronged generally. Um, now, to what extent you want to say he is not you know, acknowledging his own culpability in some of these things, um, I'm with you. But to me, by far, the comments about the UFC, about Vitor Belfort, about that UFC 151, UFC 152 stuff. You know, I'm just going to keep saying this because I've always thought it was true. I always said it was true. I never understood it. Fans were always like, oh, man, I love, you know, the refreshing nature of um, Dana White's candor. And certainly uh, there are moments where everyone would say that same thing. Like, even if you were, you know, Jerry Millen and you hated Dana White, there must have been moments where he said things that you agreed with and you, you, you respected the fact that there was candor there. But the fact of the matter is there's a reason why you can't do that. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. We don't live in a world where you're able to be candid at all times. All these guys who claim they can do that um, in any walk of life, it's just, it's just not possible unless you are completely and entirely um, not dependent on other people. But if you're a business person, you are. This is why business people don't talk this way, because it backfires over time. If not immediately, then eventually. This is why. It's, it's just, it, it, it does, it, there's, there's so, there are very little upside to it and a lot of downsides. Because now you have John Jones, who if Conor McGregor loses, you know, that's the guy they're going to be looking at for a big pay-per-view buy rate. And he's not all that happy. He's not all that happy. You know, when, when. You, you just can't piss off sponsors. You can't piss off your stars. You know, you, re- I mean, eventually bad, you know, people are going to not get along, but I just want to make a side note here, this whole business. And this is why they don't do the scrums anymore because you're going to get sued. And when you do, they're going to bring up all these comments in the course of a lawsuit. They're a liability in the business world. So if you appreciate the candor of that and any other person in any other walk of life or business that you feel like really just lays it out there, that's fine if you're not dependent on anyone else. And you can just say whatever you feel. That's a different story. But if you're in business and you're in the you know the business of like working with other people and getting them to a you know sign on the dotted line under terms you find mutually beneficial, angering them and distancing yourself from them, you know, there's <laughs> There's not the not a lot of advisable ways to do that. The best way to do it is to just not piss them off, probably, you know, unless you absolutely feel you have no recourse but but to do that. Just want to make that point. I feel like I've, I've always I always was like, I don't know, man. I think this is going to come back to haunt them, and and uh, and here we go. So there's a little bit of that. Okay, but about Jones. Um, How do you know he's not lying about everything? How do you know? Now, you could ask that question about any interview, right? 
literally just pick any fighter, any interview I've done, Ariel, Sean, Hel- Sean Elshadi, Chuck Mendenhall. How do you know they're not lying? You don't. On some level, you this is just a you take it on faith uh, a little bit that they're going to do the right thing and that the image they're presenting is um, the one that is real. But I saw so many fans after the interview came out. There was mixed reaction, of course. Um, but I saw some being like, well, I like the real side of John Jones. How on earth could you possibly know that this was the real side? Is there a real, what is the real side? Because he is confessing things or at least giving off the appearance of confessing things. What is that? That's not anything. The, the comments about UFC seem believable because they're actionable. They're real world. Um, they clearly align his comments. They align with his self-interest. I don't know those to be true either, but at least those seem plausible. And again, let me be clear about this. I'm not accusing him of doing a one-hour phony interview. What I am saying is, this is a guy who in that interview repeatedly stated that, you know, in the past he was not presenting an honest image. And I don't really know the real John Jones. And I've I've interacted with Jones, Jesus, a dozen times or more in lengthy situations, several hours long. But I, I can't claim to know him. You know, uh, did it? Did parts of it appear like candor? Sure, of course. Um, did parts of it appear like he was contrite? Sure. Did parts of it appear like he wasn't all that contrite? Yes, that too. Um, but I, I just found it so bizarre when people are like, well, I like this real version. How could you possibly know if this was real? To me, the fact that he was trying to do, you know, if you really don't, I mean, look, he's a business guy. He wants to get sponsors back. He wants to be, you know, um, it's at some level, I think he does want to still be liked. Better to be liked than not, you know. But, you know, if you really don't care, um, how much do you really say? So, you know, we have an obligation to ask him these questions. And again, I thought, uh, you know, I thought the interview was, in that sense, incredibly important and well done. But I'm just going to go back to the same thing I've been saying about Jones since the accident. I'm done. I'm done with this, you know, this this craving to to make Jones be the smiling all star that you can, you know, um, show off to your friends and take to city hall and shake hands with the mayor and like. I'm not saying he that is he's irredeemable. I'm not saying that that's not something that's not possible down the road. But man, for the time being, not interested, man. Not interested in performances. Not interested in claims that they're not performances. Nothing. Nothing. What I'm interested in is what he does in that cage and what he does outside of it to the extent it's relevant to my life or anyone else's, which is outside the cage, not much. If over time he shows himself to be law-abiding, if over time there's overwhelming third-party validation or evidence or whatever, that we can then reconsider our views of Jones to have truly, after the fact, from an evidentiary standpoint, having using this episode to turn the corner, sure, then we'll get there. Um, I'll also admit that this appeared to be the most adult 
John Jones had ever seen, both physically, he looked to be just older. But this was a guy who I, again, I don't know any of this to be true, but there I did get a little bit of a sense, especially with those UFC comments, the ones that seemed to be the most plausible things, there was a little bit of youthful naivete knocked off of him in the last few years, both with his acrimony, with his promoter, with his own inability to manage his own affairs. Um, who knows what's going on with you know any kind of damage relationships in his personal life. Um, he did seem to be older. Now, when I said he was adult, people that, you know, people were like, well, you, you, what, you, he's fixed all his problems. Like, since when did being a more adult mean being perfect? I mean, a, an adult is anything but perfect. An adult is a deeply flawed creature, but it's an older one. It's one that's seen the world rotate on its axis a few times, you know, and they might still have bad habits. They might still have ridiculous views, but there's just a certain tenure there that brings with it a, a slight degree of sophistication, um, a, a, a badly imperfect one, but one nevertheless. And I think I saw some of that, you know, and just think about your own life. If you're a young man, when you turn 28 um, or, you know, when you were getting towards 30, I don't know how you felt, but like, I think, you know, a lot of us felt like um, you were growing into your income potential at work. You were physically you know, becoming a man uh, in a way that, you know, even at 22 and 25, you maybe necessarily weren't. Um, again, you maybe had been in relationships before. You'd gone to college. You had a few jobs. You paid rent. You, you know, you had your heart broken, been in car accidents, death in your families. You'd just seen a little bit more at 28. You, you just, life, life's goodness and, and awfulness had washed over you a few times. Um, and again, this does not in somehow make you some perfect oracle of wisdom. You are still at 28, a know nothing, but, um, at 22, you, I mean, you truly know nothing about the world. You know, absolutely nothing about the world at 25. You get a little bit savvier, you know, at 28, that's when you start to really as a young, and I'm 35, I'm, I'm sure at I'm 35 or 36, I don't even know anymore. I'm sure at 40 and at 50, I'll look back if I make it that long and say, well, you didn't know anything at that age either. Yeah, maybe so. But again, you know, I've been married, I own a home, uh, seen parts of the world. Like you just get a little bit wiser about certain things in your life. And I, I definitely detected that a little bit. But again, what if that's all performance art with him? What if all what if all that is just me detecting nothing that's actually there? What if in six months he goes out and gets in trouble again? Would that really be the most implausible thing you'd ever heard? I don't know. I hope it's not true. I hope that that measure of adulthood that I think I'm picking up on is actually there. But what I also hope he really takes seriously, it seems like the commitment to his career is there in ways it wasn't before. We'll see. But I really think that there's still a part of John that craves adoration, that craves, I think he's getting better about not being as needy about it or as um, absurd and what he'll do to get it. So I think that part he's gotten a little bit wiser about, but there's still a part of me that's like, you know, it's not just good enough to be the star of the show. It's to be the hero of the, of the story. Even if he's a flawed hero, which at best is what he is. I still, I still pick up on that a little bit. And, and, and that should make sense. You know, if you're as capable as he is, arguably we're talking about a once in a generation talent, you know, Maybe the best fighter we've ever seen. We'll see what he does when he comes back. His resume already is just beyond compare in some ways. Uh, and if he can top that, um, 
you know, the, the kind of mentality you have to have to, to not just, you know, to push through the bad Gustafson fight. And, and, you know, you mentioned drinking up until, you know, late into a fight camp and they're going out and just bulldozing these guys. You imagine what that did to his head, you know? Uh, now life has brought him back to earth a little bit. We think we'll see, but I guess for me, it was, you know, you can read into things and think you read into things and I'm guilty of that to an extent, which I'm admitting up front, but really for the most part, let's see what he does in the cage and let's see what he does outside of it. And after a while, if it seems like a corner has been turned to the best of our discernible ability, we can revisit conversations about John Jones. But this whole bit about like, uh, you know, I mean, again, like the people were like, I liked what he said here and I didn't like what he said here. You know, why can't he say this? Like, again, why are you trying to make him something he's not? What is wrong with him saying something about his life that you don't like? Do you really think there's things I can tell you about my life and the things I've done and you're just going to like it all? Do you really think there's things you can tell me about you, your life and your beliefs and things you've done and I'm going to like it all? What is this need to be omni-likable? Truthfully, do you think there's things George St. Pierre can tell you and you're just not going to detest? He's just good about keeping that away, smartly. There's everything about everyone that is lamentable, sad, depressing, stupid, awful, gross, dark. And, and maybe John is less savvy about shielding us from that or shielding himself from questions about that. But like this need to be like, well, I like, okay, that was fine, but why didn't he do this and why didn't he do that? Because he didn't. Because he didn't. Because that's who he is. What is this? overarching need to police every ounce of his identity what is this overarching need to police you know whether or not he sees things on the terms that you do and yeah if we're talking about gross negligence to the point of you're breaking laws that affect your ability to be in society then we can have a bigger conversation and we've had that about john but other things this minutia that people pick up on he is who he is in some ways i'm sure he is a good guy in some ways i'm sure he is you know, uh, 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 the teammate that people want him to be and the dad and the husband and the brother and the son and all those things that, uh, that a young man is. In some ways, maybe he's not up to your standards there, but that's what you got. That's what you got. And I just find that there's a, you know, I mean, Ronda Rossi's been picked apart to death too. I would never deny it. Uh, and it hasn't shown, obviously, nearly the same level of... Um, dysfunction in terms of managing her own affairs in, in her pro career as, as John has not many MMA have, uh, who are still around anyway, but long story short on this, um, John's going to be who he's going to be, man. That's what, that's what it's going to be. And over time, if he really shows himself to be a little bit different, we'll see, but it's been what? Six months. Six months in a young man's life is not that long. It may feel like a long time. It's not that long. Maybe he's been scared straight, but has he really changed? Changed, like truly changed. Change takes a while. It takes a while. So when I say he appeared to be an adult person, it's because he's he's seen a lot in his time. And I think in some ways that has grown him. Um, 
but has it corrected for the flaws that everyone seems to find is there? Has it corrected for the flaws? The only ones I care about are the ones of can he contribute to society or not? But can you stay out of people's way in a harmful or good way? We'll see. We will see. I'm sure this whole process has affected him. How much? You don't know, and I don't know. And despite what John tells us, maybe he even doesn't know. Follow up to this. Which aspect? Oh, one second. Which aspect of the Jones interview do you think the UFC brass will have to address? Jones's comments on being sure Vitor Belfort was on stairways before that fight? Yeah, they're going to have a conversation about that. John reopening old wounds with the 151 cancellation, saying his promoter should, should be showcasing him, not turning fans against him. They're going to have a conversation about that. The party lifestyle, I'm sure they've already had conversations about that to an extent. John saying he respects Lorenzo more, i.e. he seems more genuine. Boy, was that interesting. Didn't seem to have the most positive relationship with UFC President Dana White, huh? I don't know what kind of relationship he has with him in real life and with Lorenzo in real life, but for him to say that publicly, that was also, you know, the need to lie there is not clear. The need to lie about, I mean, for example, he was like, yeah, last time I smoked was three or four months ago. I was an addict. No, if you're an addict, you're always an addict. And also, marijuana is not pharmacologically addicting. It can be psychologically addicting. There's no pharmacological property that is addicting. So I don't know what he means by that. I mean, again, was that just something he wants to tell to make everyone like him in, pu- in public? I don't know. It kind of smells that way a little bit, but I can't be too sure. You can just never be too sure about John. This is kind of what he's done to himself. And that's why I try to engage in it and pour over it and like, oh, well, you know, what does he mean when he talks about himself here? I don't know. But when he talks about the rest of the world a little bit, I kind of listen a little bit more. The big one. John saying he was the one who declined the Rumble fight, and it was actually... His declining that, that influenced the UFC to strip him, not the incident. That is entirely consistent to me. Uh, I thought it was because they were just like, okay, enough of this. But, you know, um, look, they're promoters. They want the event to go forward. Uh, and they might do so under circumstances that you or I might consider to be relatively, if not outright, cynical and depressing. But um, they're in the business of putting on fights. They're not in the business of canceling them. Does the UFC address these? You know, it's interesting. Um, now that they're not, now that they're not as quite as public in fighter talking point refutation, these things have much more uh, weight in the media than they used to. Used to be a guy would say something like this, and there would me- immediately be this like vociferous UFC response, typically from UFC president Dana White, that would like smash it all to pieces, and fans would be like, "Yes, we love your candor." You know, obviously uh, that you know that has some uh, some real limits in terms of its effectiveness. Um, so now things like what Jones saying can live a little bit longer. We'll see, man. Look, in the end, they are they have a mutual overlapping set of interests. Together, they work better than than they work apart. And in the end, I will th- I am assuming that will be the dominating force that affects everything. On the other hand, what's going to happen when it's all over? I, I mean, for example, the, the the arguments about like John saying, you know you know, some people like Chuck Liddell or whatever, they get jobs when they're done with the UFC, but most of them just get thrown to the side. This is his words, not mine. I mean, I don't know if you use those words exactly, but like, you know, that not everyone gets this cushy stuff when, when, when the career is over. And uh, although they, they put him on Fox that one time and he was absolutely terrible, 
but okay, neither here nor there. Um, you know, you got to take care of yourself. You got to you got to look out for number one. That was very interesting to me. You know, is he gonna? I mean, everyone will talk about fighters union. I don't know. Let's slow down. But we're at least at the stage where fighters are declaring self worth. This is relatively unique in MMA, where fighters are outright declaring. I am an independent contractor of extraordinary value, and you, promoter, you will recognize this, and together we will work things out. Jones doing it from the more hostile side, Connor doing it from the more friendly side, but these are essentially two different versions of the same thing. These are guys saying, without me, you can't do this. Now, the UFC, of course, can turn around and say, well, without us, you can't do that either, but that leads to all of my point about fighters asserting value and, and it's it's it, this is everyone wants to talk about a fighters union like we need to first get fighters to recognize they have value and that there's value in asserting that then later much later the fighters union will happen but if guys are just like hey boss you're my employee you're I'm sorry you're my boss and i do what you say that's not how jones looks at this anymore uh you know i think again he was like you know he wanted to do things for the company i do feel Again, I don't know this to be true. Kind of wants to be liked a little bit. But in the end, you know, is it worth giving up everything for it? I don't know. Seeing John Jones' new physique from powerlifting exercises, do you feel the Cormier-Jones rematch would be much more one-sided than the first? And if he does win, moves to heavyweight, how well do you feel he will do against Verdum, Kane, Stipe, and JDS? Um, let's see how he looks when he comes back. Let's see what kind of, you know, effort he puts in. Let's see uh, if it slows him down or drains his cardio. I don't think that it will, but let's just... Let's just see what it does to him physically first before we start, you know, making these bold proclamations about a move to heavyweight. Um, the thing that always bothered me about the Cormier fight from Jones's perspective was that he chose to fight him a certain way and took a lot of extra shots in the process rather than trying to beat him as efficiently and quickly as possible. Or I should say as efficiently and quickly as he could have reasonably done. The fight dragged because he wanted it to go a certain way and that took him longer to get there. Now, that in and of itself is scary, but it also opened him up to a little extra risk that didn't need to be there. What I'm curious to see is if with these new muscles, he wants to flex them, both literally and figuratively, when he gets in there with Cormier to say, um, you know, I beat you that fast before the full 25. Watch how fast I can do it now. There is, I wonder if that, if that, if his, if, if there's a need to demonstrate might. If there is, could be interesting. Uh, Tim Kennedy's comments about Edmund Tarverdian being a terrorist sympathizer, quote, unquote. Uh, Luke, there seems to be a large percentage of MMA fans that think because Tim served in the U.S. in combat that he gets a pass for those comments. You were in the military as well. What's your thoughts on public military figure like Tim making comments like that? Well, let me, uh, let me, let me say something about this real quick because this actually draws on two cross-sections of my life. My mother is Armenian. I'm half Armenian. Um, I don't, I don't know if, if I look at it in ways that are characteristically Armenian, I don't have any sort of Indo-European look to me in that way. My mother was, uh, uh, a, my family, um, was, my mother was born in Aleppo, Syria. They were part of the, uh, uh Armenian diaspora in Arme in, um, Syria. She eventually grew up in, um, in Beirut, Lebanon, and then moved to the States, um, after she had, I was the third of three children. And then moved here. So I didn't come to the States until long after I was born. Um, so, so 
I served in the military and my mother is deceased, but was Armenian. Yeah. Okay. Um, this is, this was a weird comment to me because look, I don't want to jump to conclusions here. I'm the first guy to be like, you know, I'm, you guys know me, I'm a little bit left wing, but like off color jokes don't bother me off color comments. I try not to get too much up in arms about, I really don't. I mean, if it's egregious and like all over the place or, you know, like I don't go to bed at night, like sweating about the Washington Redskins name, but I think it's kind of messed up. I kind of feel like they should change it. Um, but you know, if someone makes a joke at a party, I'm not going to laugh at a stupid, you know, off color joke, but, um, I'm not going to like, you know, think he's the worst person in the world either. Again, you know, it depends on all the situations and the context of the information. Just trying to make a point here. So if he was just making a joke, like, oh, that guy's a terrorist sympathizer. I mean, I've called my friends terrorists before. Like, this, I'm like, you are, you are a terrorist. You are worse than Osama bin Laden. I've said these things. If that's what it was, I really don't care. It's fine. I just don't care. You know? And even if, even if what he meant was Armenia is vaguely Middle Eastern, which I'll get to in just a second, um, and because it's vaguely Middle Eastern and Edmund Tarverdian, you know, is close to that-ish and therefore Muslim. I'm, I'm not even sure what at all he's trying to make there, but that, like, there's some sort of association with Armenia being, you know, relatively close to the Middle East and in their, their, therefore um, a problem state as it relates to terrorism or some kind of loose. So I can't, it's hard for me to even piece together what it all means because it actually doesn't even make any sense. This is the point. Armenians are Christians. Armenia is the first Christian nation in history. <laughs> I don't know if folks realize that. Um, they're, they're Christians. They're not Muslim. They're, they're, they're Christians. Uh, it is an explicitly Christian nation. Uh, it has no ties to any form of uh, terrorism, Islamic or otherwise, that I am aware of. <laughs> they don't like Azerbaijanis so much. Um, I don't know if it's the Russian or Iranian side that they like less or more. But yeah, so like to me, it was like if he was trying to make a claim that like because they're vaguely Middle Eastern, Indo-Europe, you know, always a terrorist sympathizer. It's like it doesn't even make sense. Ar Armenians are Christians. Uh, it's a Christian country, uh, ex explicitly. Um, so I was just like, you know, if he was trying to make that kind of joke, jokes on him, man. <laughs> that was that was that was how I looked at it. It was like, if you're trying to make a anti-Muslim joke, you have failed. You have failed. I mean, you know, in ways that I can't even describe. Um. Edmund Tarverdian is not Muslim. Carl Parisian is not, it's not Muslim. Uh, my family, the Georgians, I can assure you, they're not Muslim. So uh, my mom dated a Druze growing up. Does that count? In Beirut? Yeah, that's how I feel about that. It's like, if you were trying to actually be awful, uh, by disparaging Armenians because you think they were Muslims jokes, not on us, man. All right. Uh, Rhonda's popularity without the belt. If Rhonda can't get her belt back, 
do you feel all these movie roles would not be available and the media would eventually stop wanting to interview her? Or do you feel her popularity is already set in stone despite not having the belt? Boy, this is a really interesting question, you know. I don't think any of us really know. Rhonda is unlike anyone else we've ever had in MMA, right? She's the most popular fighter ever, has touched parts of the media we couldn't hope to. And because she has, and she has this association with home, now home is getting into some of these territories, although we'll see how long-lasting that is. Um, but still, you know, the fact that two women have been on shows that no other fighter has ever been on is crazy, right? Crazy, crazy, crazy. But to that end, I don't really know. Look, if she was just an MMA fighter who was like Conor McGregor, like very, very popular, big mover of money, big mover of pay-per-view buys, you know, a, a, a gate sensation in big fights, I would say, you know, would the media like us or whoever kind of covered that level of fighter, would they really care? You know, they'd be very forgiving. You guys know how this works. It wouldn't be the end of the world. But Ronda's in like this very much uncharted territory. I really don't know. My hunch is that they won't just abandon her. But this to me is why the immediate rematch with Holly Holm makes very little sense. Because we don't really know what's going to happen with this Roadhouse you know, movie or anything else. And if she loses twice, which then, you know, if she becomes the Rich Franklin of women's bantamweight after being what she was... You know, what does that do to her Hollywood career? Maybe nothing, but part of you just feels intuitively that she can't get off that easy, you know? And if your image is tied to your in-cage performance in terms of success, not so much, you know, fighter who likes to give everyone everything kind of thing. I don't know. I really don't know. How much does extra with Billy Bush still want to talk to Ronda Rousey if she gets starched again? I don't know. I don't know. You know, Floyd's always in the news, but Floyd is in the news for a bad things that he does, but also Floyd never never loses. There's always this thing about him that keeps keeps him um, you know, reasonably relevant. If you keep losing, what happens? We're going to find out. Ronda is going to show us at least the first I don't know if the blueprint is the right word because every fighter will have their own circumstances, their own appeal. But um She's going to show us what one version of this dynamic looks like when it's all said and done. For sure. For sure. Am I the only one who thinks Misha Tate is a bad matchup for Holly Holm? Um, why would you think that she's a... I mean, I'm not saying you're wrong. Um, look, you know, I wasn't just wrong about Holly Holm relative to the Rousey fight, I was wrong about her generally. So um, I really have to go back and reevaluate and think about how she'll do against her competitors. You know, I think Misha Tate will definitely pressure her more um, in the wrestling and getting her back against the fence. But Misha Tate gets caught a lot too. Misha Tate makes better adjustments. I don't think she'd get caught quite as bad. So I think Misha Tate is a better matchup in some ways for her than than Ronda was for Holly Holm and her ability to not get, you know, lit up as often striking and her ability to maybe get a takedown and hold her there. Um, these things seem doable to me, but again, I go back to her ability to just keep distance at all times, getting her hand up cross facing hand for inside control. She was always really diligent and excellent about it. She's, and again, she's physically strong, man. Like if you have good technique and someone's physically strong, 
and they're good at getting up off the bottom, it's going to be hard to hold them down, dude. Even if someone like someone like Misha has good wrestling, but in the Zingano fight, she didn't show the best base I've ever seen. Right? You go back and you watch how often the two were trading, you know, who was controlling base there. It was a lot of turnover. And, you know, Holm is not going to, like, get on top and engage. She's going to get on top and get away, and then it's back on the feet. So I, I think that Misha might be a better matchup, but I don't. I don't know if I'm ready to call her a bad matchup for Holly. Uh, Josh Barnett versus Ben Rothwell. Who are you? Who are you taking? Man, this is a really interesting fight. Big Ben is going to put a lot of pressure on him. Um, Barnett, we know has abilities everywhere. Is Barnett really going to be able to take him to the ground? Can Barnett jab, stick, and move? I don't know. It's a very tough call. I'll probably go with Barnett, but there's a big part of me that feels like this is a very, uh, the most dangerous version of Ben Rothwell we've ever seen. Best takedown defense he's ever had. Best forward movement. Um, best angles, believe it or not. Um, he's dangerous, man. It, this is a great, great fight and a really big win for Rothwell if he can get it. I still just think the, there's too many ways for Barnett to win. Yeah, he got torched against the cage by Travis Brown, and he's had some of the shortcomings, but push comes to shove. He's, if you ask who's got more ways to win, I usually lean that direction. But nevertheless, I'm going to be watching that one very closely like you because I think it would be very foolish to count out Rothwell. Very. Uh, how do you make the 125 division better? A dominant champ ruling a division can be fun to watch like Jones, GSP, Ronda Rousey. But many would agree that's not the case with Mighty Mouse. Why is 125 not as popular? Smaller guys naturally have an, an, a, a hill to climb that it, that is not equally applicable in all cases, but generally speaking, that is true. Smaller you are, the harder it is to impress uh, audiences. And then you have someone like uh, Demetrius Johnson, who is an incredible athlete, a, a, a credit to combat athletes everywhere, but it's a bit Ned Flanders-ish, and as a consequence, um, you know, hasn't become the most dynamic uh, uh, star in a sport, you know, built on grudge match and rivalries. And then someone's posting information here about um, size and how it affects outcomes. Uh, with Anderson versus Vitor 2 in the works for UFC 197 in Rio, who are you taking in the rematch? Got to be Anderson. Vitor, what I've noticed with Vitor is he still has quickness early. He he got a hold of Weidman, and obviously we saw what he did with Hendo. He is still dangerous early. But I still feel like Silva's quick, Silva's going to be better with range, and Silva's going to have the ability to, if he wants, drag the fight out a little bit. Um, once that happens, who's the better striker? Once Vitor slows down just a tick, Who's the better striker? Still going to be Anderson Silva for me. But they should be more competitive this time. The first time, I didn't think it was very competitive, and in the end, it wasn't. You know, Vitor getting front kick to the face, phenomenal, right? Um, this time, I think it's a little more competitive. Anderson's ability to take a shot is not what it used to be. Um, Vitor can't go the distance at all, but early is right up there with the very best of them right now. Um, it's very accurate punching still. Vitor in the first three minutes is a handful, but by round two or late in round one, especially against the, you know, a wrestler like Chris Weidman, that's not who Anderson Silva is, I get, but I'm just saying it gets a little bit more 
even. All right, true or false? UFC 193 sells more pay-per-view buys than UFC 194. True. Ooh. True. Holmes' first title defense will be a UFC 200 against Rousey. I hope that's false. Canelo does not fight Golovkin next. I'm going to say true to that. I think it's a bunch of bull that he's going to fight him next. Uh, I could appear on the MMA. I could not appear on the MMA because I injured my back deadlifting again. Believe it or not, uh, I. So I'm sorry I couldn't be on the beat. Um, there is a muscle that connects your vertebrae to your hip. It appears I have um, damaged that. So I don't know what that what that comes from. There has been little web traffic for UFC Fight Night in Korea. Virtually nothing. Uh, I do not partake in Black Friday shopping with the other U.S. donks. I'm not going to a store, but I'll take your Amazon deals. Yes, sir. I got same-day delivery. Bought a Kindle this morning. It'll be here this evening. Whoop. Uh, James Glory will not post because it's Friday night in England, and he is out getting loaded at a pub. I certainly hope so. Uh, hypothetical matchup. Marinovich, BJ Penn versus Jose Aldo. The Marinovich pen was good, but Aldo. Uh, please do not ever skip a beat again. I, I apologize. What can I do? Uh, do you think that Rousey's personal relationships with those in the media, you excluded, with White, have tainted their perspective of her performance, her ability to rematch, and find the reasons for the fan vitriol? No, I think everyone got caught up in that, man. Everyone did. The only thing, again, I took a little bit of crap when I was like, you guys you guys watch my chat. You guys know what I said. I, when she was in the cover and they called her the world's most dominant athlete, I was like, are you out of your mind? She's not even the world's most dominant female athlete. And by the way, Jordan Burroughs has a claim to be the world's most dominant athlete. I said it on this chat. You guys know I did. It was ridiculous. And her corner, like, once ever, I was like, yo, for real, like, there are other elite female athletes out there that will make their way to the sport. you got to just give a little bit of time. You know, she's obviously tremendous, but she's not tremendous in the sense that she is a unicorn. I mean, let's be serious about this. And, you know, MMA is what we always knew it to be. Everybody loses. It's not possible. Look at even Jordan Burroughs has lost some matches. It is not possible to compete against the best in your field consistently and win. It's just not possible. And you can say, well, how did Floyd do it? Floyd do it with a little bit of sleight of hand, y'all. He fought a lot of tough guys in his, in his prime. He fought a lot of tough guys when he was supposed to. He fought a lot of tough guys a little bit after the fact. It's just true. And, of course, he's extraordinarily good. So there's both of those things. Um, but I don't think it's got personal relationships in the media. Everyone just kind of bought into this bull S that, you know, someone of extraordinary ability, which she is, is so extraordinary. Um, this is what, this is what I was trying to say. And then people got bitter at me. Remember, remember this? And I was like, remember the argument I made? If you look at dominance on the men's side, the men's side is much more developed. There are more weight classes. There are more participants. There are many more gyms. It's just so much more complete relative to the women's side. Look at what dominance on that side of the game looks like. That's what dominance looks like. If you see a cartoonish version on the other side, which is what you saw, 
Yes, it means that Rousey was very, very good. It also means that the competition up until home was just not there either. That's what the huge disparity accounted for. The, the sustained dominance of GSP and Anderson Silva, it had moments where that almost came to an end. And it did for George St. Pierre. You know, in the, in the 16-fight win streak for Anderson Silva, boy, they put him to the test a few times. He got pushed to the brink more than once. She wasn't even getting pushed to the second round. If you see cartoonish things that don't match a much more developed, a much fuller system, something is wrong with that system. Something is very right with Rousey, of course. She's a beast. Even after the loss to home, Rousey is a beast. But there's also something a little bit missing there. It's just how it works. It's, it's, it's you're not, no, no one's trying to be unnecessarily disparaging. No one's trying to be insulting. No one's trying to be sexist. It's none of these things. We're just trying to describe the situations accurately. One side is much more fully formed. The other one is not. So a dominant athlete with a very unique skill set up until the competition can you know slowly inch in on her, um, she's going to have major advantages that just don't exist on the other side of the game where those kinds of gaps in talent don't exist. Or they do exist, you just don't get to see them because they get weeded out before someone of that level can match someone of this level. And they don't get the opportunity on the men's side. Klitschko versus Fury, will you be watching? No, but I am interested. Oh, Tyson Fury is a crazy man. Tyson Fury is hilarious, man. He is a true bizarro character in the sport that boxing needs. It's a shame that uh, he's not getting more attention. Uh, I'm not gonna say it's that. I'm not gonna say it's a shame that he's not American. I don't. I don't want to like rob him of his identity. But I wonder if he was an American, if he would be getting more attention for boxing generally. Uh, he is. He is. He is crazy, but in a good way. And you know, he can box a little bit. You know, Cunningham, I believe, dropped him, but he came back and he he bombed on old Cunningham. So um, I don't know if I like his chances to beat Klitschko, but I love what a unique and bizarre and crazy character he is hold on John Jones's take on the events leading up to his fight with Gustafson. One of the most discussed topics in the MMA forum since UFC 165 has to deal with John Jones's preparation for the camp. There seems to be a very large percentage of fans that think there are some giant conspiracy of people making up stories about Jones partying during that camp. Finally, we got to hear the rumors floating around that were indeed true. Luke, I think I remember you even said someone told you all off the record about this. Yeah, boy, let me tell you something. That was not a well-kept secret at all. At all. But even then, and none of us were like, it's not going to matter, you know? cares and then Gustafson proved to be a much tougher challenge and people realized even independent of Joan John Jones doing that told y'all I wasn't lying when I came up here and said all that but you know again I mean I'm sure he's I know he's telling the truth but always be kind of cautious with John uh, I agree with Brian Stan I think Henry Cejudo is going to give Demetrius Johnson a run for his money what do you think um think he's going to get post some problems early. I just don't know about later. I also don't think his dynamic is as movement and fluid. Now, that could be the weight cut. But but at 125, 
Demetrius can like, you know, zoom in and out and cover ground and get out of the way and throw a punch and change levels. He can, he can just manipulate his body in time and space so quickly, so expertly uh, in ways that um, I have not seen Henry do in MMA. But if he can fix the weight cut issues, how much more mobile does that make him? So I think early he might be a little bit of a problem for DJ, but over five rounds, who has more ways to win? DJ. Uh, Bellator expansion. Bellator will be doing three shows overseas next year. Good or bad move? I'm assuming they're doing it because it's good for their business. Um, where are they going? London, Italy, and Israel. They must be doing places where Viacom has some kind of accommodating TV deal where there's probably some research to indicate these are places they should go. They have fighters they can put on the card there. Uh, we'll see what kind of cards that they have. Um, but, you know, Israel and Italy are two places UFC's never been. Um, they have enough fighters in the roster to go to London to, I think, do a decent card. Paul Daly, James Thompson. You know, they did the whole British invasion card already here in America. It makes much more sense to do it over there. So, um, yeah, we'll see. I, they certainly don't seem like foolhardy, crazy moves, do they? They seem to make some sense. By the way, Rumble versus Bader, who you got? A horrible matchup for Bader, or do you think he takes a page out of DC's book? And pressures Rumble to the point of gassing en route to a possible sub or decision win. If he weathers an early storm, of course. Yeah, that's that. That's also the same question John Jones is going to have to answer. Again, um, Rumble Johnson has a power in the first minute to lay out a horse, a Clydesdale horse. So if you're going to fight him, you got to get past that. And Daniel Cormier barely got past that. And Alexander Gustafson could not get past that. Um, he is just a monster. He's much more accurate with his punching than he used to be and filling out his power has grown with it. And he, and his speed is still insanely formidable. Um, his distance is great. His timing is great. Like everything you need to do to land a huge shot early, he can do as we've seen. Once you can get past that, he's a little more vulnerable. You know, he does have an Achilles heel. Um, you know, do I have confidence that this is a, that if they fought 10 times, Bader could get past it? Yeah, probably. This time, I don't know. I, I wouldn't bet on it. Again, I don't want to count somebody out, then they surprise you, you know. But you got to really pressure Johnson. Like, for example, Phil Davis could not really pressure Johnson, and so Johnson never really got that tired. But Cormier pressured him. Cormier got past the punch, put hands on him, and made him wrestle. If he's just, you know, if 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 all Johnson has to do is just um, stop your shot from away from the outside, he doesn't really get tired. It's not a very tiring thing to do. But if you have to, like, fight off underhooks when we're wrestling against the fence and you're trying to take my back and I got to stand up and we're fighting for takedowns, that's exhausting. That's exhausting. You know, can Ryan Bader really do that? I got my doubts, you know, but I could be wrong, man. I could be wrong. Ryan Bader's a huge guy. He can wrestle his ass off. He can ride once he gets down there. So we'll see. John Jones and UFC. In Ariel's interview, there was a lot of things wrong between Jones and UFC. 
Because you see it happen at some point that Viacom will spend a lot of money to sign John Jones. Not anytime soon, man. Not anytime soon. Where is his interest? It's in making the most amount of money fighting the best guys, given who he is. Where does that happen? UFC. Their interests, they have mutual interest. They might have mutual hatred, but mutual interests typically overcome mutual hatred. To say nothing of whatever contract he's locked into. Uh, Rico Verhoeven in MMA. He made his MMA debut a couple of weeks ago. It was like a couple of months ago at this point. And won impressive with ground and pound in the first round. In a couple of weeks, he will fight his last kickboxing fight in the Holland for Glory 26. He wants to focus full-time for MMA in 2016. How far do you think he can go if you compare him with other kickboxers like Overeem and Hunt? This guy is much more skilled. His technique is amazing. and He is a very big guy who probably isn't easy to take down. I bet he is very easy to take down, but let me explain that in a minute. His main focus is wrestling and has improved very much and also won a year ago the Dutch Grappling Heavyweight Tournament. That means nothing. In Holland, there's a lot of buzz for this guy. Many already think he passed Overeem Screw for sure. Well, he hasn't passed either of them. Look, he beat a guy who was not good. Let's just call that what it is. Now, he did uh, have a nice trip, take down one to one side, then switch to the other. It was an inside trip, if I'm not mistaken. That's very nice. But the guy, once he got him down, had literally like the worst defense I've ever seen. So that's not Rico's fault. That is exactly who Rico should be fighting at this stage in his MMA career. You build a guy slowly. The key for you out there is to not read too much into it. So how did Rico look? Yeah, it looked phenomenal. You just can't discern that much from it in terms of what it means for the next level. You slowly build a guy. The initial fights they'll take will be blowouts because they are so talented. But you just can't assume, oh, I'm just going to throw you to the wolves early, like the Japanese did uh, in the Pride era. Taking prospects who, you know, if you nurture them, then maybe they could have become something. And then you don't, you throw them to the wolves and they become nothing. Or at least, you know, a, a, a muted version of themselves. Um, so the guy Rico fought was terrible, but that's who he's supposed to be fighting. Guys who have a bit of a punch, who can hurt you a little bit. Um, but ultimately, you're more skilled than them, you're bigger than them, you're a better athlete than them. You should be able to win this fight relatively easily, which is basically what you saw. That's how it's supposed to go. Rico did his job. I have no fault in him whatsoever. His people who put the fight together did their job. And to an extent, the guy who got beat did his job. He did what he could, which is to say not much. But that's what's supposed to happen at the early stages for a prospect's career. They are not supposed to be fighting very good guys where you can really learn a lot because they're still putting their skills together. They're still trying to figure it out. They're still trying to make it all work. So until he can really graduate the levels, you just can't say definitively, this is how good he is. All you can say is, good first start. Let's see the second one. And we'll slowly inch our way forward. SBG Coaching. I haven't watched The Ultimate Fighter, but I've heard a lot about the coaching of Kavanaugh and how excellent he has been. Aside from Connor, however, I've noticed a lack of progression in his athletes. Gunner, Cajal, Patty, and uh, 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 Ash, uh, whatever, uh, have shown to, I just, I can't think straight, have all shown to have difficulty adding to their games. Could this be similar to Edmund and Rousey, where a coach is a top-tier athlete garnering them success? What is your take on SBG athletes outside of Connor? Even if Connor is the only champion, let's say let's let's say let's say Connor uh, wins at UFC 194. Maybe he doesn't. Let's just say for the sake of argument that he does, and that's the only champion that that uh, that um, that uh, John Kavanaugh has ever had. 
that still makes him better than a lot of coaches. You know, uh, because you know, Rousey walked in there already already better than most women, and they polished her up a little bit. You know, Connor was a work that took a while, a little bit. Remember, he quit training for a while, and they had to build him back up. And you know, Kavanaugh's found a way to get other people in the gym and to and to get you know um, these alliances working with other gyms where they can get people to come over there. Ryan Hall recently trained over there because he has an association with Gunnar Nelson. Gunnar Nelson has an association with Conor McGregor, and the whole thing worked together. Uh, and 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 the question is not you know always such a measurement of well if Kavanaugh can't compete with the UFC's best, what does this really say about him? I think that's a very unfair way to look at it. This is the first generation, the true first generation of guys. This is the first gym ever in Ireland to consistently, I shouldn't say consistent. This is the first gym in Ireland to put out a number of fighters able to compete at a UFC level. That is historic. That is a historic achievement. Does this mean he's as good of a judo coach as Dave Camarillo or he can give the best wrestling instruction that, um, you know, uh, Daniel Cormier has or he's, you know, he's got the wealth of knowledge necessarily that Greg Jackson does? You know, maybe not. Maybe he doesn't have that. Uh, although I'm sure he's an excellent coach. He is the first guy to take people from Ireland and in at least one case raise them to a championship level and other ones take them to a UFC level. And you look at someone like Ashley Daling or Ashling Daly, she doesn't look like that much of an athlete, man. You know, this is someone who obviously has worked very hard in her case and someone who is well coached in the other. So, you know, it, the question is not how far did he get necessarily. And with Connor, he's gotten very far. The question is, what did he do with the resources that he had? And in that sense, Pretty damn good. Seems to me a very excellent coach. It's hard to grow something out of nothing, man. It's hard to like be one of the first, was he the first black belt in Ireland or one of the first black belts in jiu-jitsu in Ireland? Start a gym, learn how to strike, learn how to have some kind of wrestling, at least for MMA purposes, have facilities, recruit fighters, get them the fights they need, slowly build them up, train them, learn, teach them how to cut weight and how to eat properly and how to defend takedowns and how to manage their lives and their finances and everything else that, you know, that this guy probably does to an extent anyway, and then have them compete on it on the highest level. You know, Patty Houlihan lost to Luis Smolka, man. Luis Smolka can fight. Luis Smolka is a bad dude. The fact that, that, that Houlihan was a Houlihan was even, you know, in the conversation with him is, is a remarkable achievement. This is not a country that has necessarily a terribly strong, you know, martial arts tradition in terms of competition success. They've got one black belt, uh, Dara O'Connell, I believe, who's a very, very good black belt, but he doesn't win any like IBJJF titles, man, at the black belt level anyway. And to, you know, to that point, not many Americans do either, but uh, you get the point. Like it's just, there's a small population and it's not like, you know, he's got a bunch of Americans running through there, moving over to Ireland just yet, because maybe people don't want to live in Ireland or it's too hard to do that or whatever the case may be. But the fact that only Conor McGregor has made it to the championship level is not a shot at him. It is a testament to how good he actually is. Uh, look, the coach at our gym is, I think, a phenomenal coach. I mean, he really is. And I, you know, I've seen a lot of coaches work, man, and I really believe he's like, 
you know, I don't know if he could coach a pro MMA fighter to a UFC championship success, but he is phenomenal. But that's just my point. Like to get, even if you got one person to that, Ronda Rousey, notwithstanding, because again, such a skill gap from the word go was not the case with Connor. He got submitted twice. So we'll see, man. We'll see. But for me, uh, Kavanaugh is a unmitigated success. Yeah. UFC Seoul, Seoul is in South Korea. How do you see the Masvidal Henderson fight playing out? I'm really intrigued by this fight. Well, I got my predictions coming out in about uh, at three o'clock, um, so I'll save that for that. Uh, Aldo versus Connor is the biggest threat to Aldo's belt. His potential hubris in standing with Connor for five rounds. We haven't seen Aldo use his ground skills recently, but they are legit. Do you think Aldo can make this a blowout if he swallows some pride and uses some wrestling and a BJJ-heavy approach to the fight? You know, it's interesting. I thought about this, too. First of all, I don't think it's hubris if he stands with Connor. I think overall he might be a better striker than Connor. The reason why I said previously that I thought um, Aldo might not be taking him seriously enough, it's not hubris. It's not like, ha, 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 no one can get me. It's more of... Did you really take the time to look at that, which he does well? The guy is a monster in Conor McGregor featherweight. He has big, big power. It does not take a lot of punches from him to change the course of a fight on a dime. And it's not that you think that, oh, this doesn't matter. It's like, yeah, you know, if you asked him, he would, you know, and if you could really read into his heart of hearts, what would he say? Yes, I have to worry about the power of Conor, but I have to do this, 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 this. He would inventory everything. And I guess my point is just not quite prioritize the power in ways where I'm yeah, maybe it should. I don't, I don't know that I would call that hubris versus just tactical miscalculation or strategic miscalculation anyway. Um, but it, it is conceivable that Aldo can stand with him for five rounds and beat him. That is not in any way a crazy thought. You know, it's also conceivable that he can get blown out too or stand standing anyway. It's at least competitive one way or the other. I, I think most of us would agree. On the ground, there is a skill differential in Aldo's favor. Now, how much? I don't know. For MMA purposes, I don't know. As a brown belt, I believe Jose Aldo won the world, and I believe he beat um, um, uh, Cobrinha to do it, which is like, I mean, Cobrinha is one of the greats. Now, at the black belt level, um, Cobrinha just stayed in jiu-jitsu, and, and Aldo moved on to MMA, so I don't think at this point it would be all that close. But... Um, Tells you how good he was back in the day. Sick athlete, man. And I also think that Jose Aldo is just a better athlete than Conor McGregor. But uh, I don't think Aldo has the punching power that McGregor has. I also, again, I made it up here before. Right here, I mean, Conor McGregor is just bulletproof up here. He is so mentally strong. It's insane. Um, in ways that I think are going to get him in trouble down the road. But for right now, when he's in his prime or entering his prime, you know, he's just going to be a handful to deal with. Uh on the ground, Jose Aldo is probably going to be better at getting the takedown, get, securing the pass. Can he hold him there? Can he really do anything with it? You know, I don't know. Obviously, we've seen Aldo, or uh, we've seen McGregor succumb to submission, but that was to like one leg lock gimmicky guy back in the day who would never beat him now. And I haven't, oh, and then uh, Duffy beat him the second time. But, you know, would Duffy do that again? Or Duffy did that once. Would he do it a second time? You know, I don't think so. So I don't know how replicable. 
or really informative those things are. If you're asking me, is there a differential on the ground? Yes. Listen, I basically think that Aldo is slightly more skilled. But Aldo has taken more damage. He's not the punching power kind of fighter that McGregor is. And the the what really makes a difference for me is the ability for Aldo to manage his energy. Because if he's constantly trying to wrestle Connor early and then, you know, he can't put him out and then the, the rounds begin to move to like three and four and five and they start standing, Conor McGregor is just going to have big power. Conor McGregor is going to have big power even when he's tired. That's how big and strong and physical he is at that weight class. He's going to lay you out even in the fifth round. Jose Aldo is going to leg kick you in the fifth round, and he might bomb on you with a one-two, but I don't buy that he's going to be like power punching McGregor, who's got a ridiculous chin right now um, on that fifth round. So that, to me, is the issue. It's... One guy might be a better athlete, and one guy might be a little more technical, and it might be the same guy in this case. But one guy is extraordinarily determined in ways that manifest themselves in performance. And that same guy has absurd punching power. And that same guy doesn't get tired. And that same guy doesn't just have good punching power. He's got good accuracy and volume punching style. That is where this, that's why this fight is so hard to figure out for me. I know some people are like, McGregor's going to run away with it, and he might. And I know some people are like, watch Aldo just, just school this fool. And maybe he does. And maybe he does. But I kind of feel like this is going to be back and forth because I do kind of feel like they're evenly matched in different ways. And when two fighters are evenly matched, and it's kind of hard to figure out how it's going to go, oftentimes what you see is, is action. McGregor's going to press on him, like we know this. And Aldo's going to back up, at least initially. We think this. But beyond that, I don't know, man. I really don't know. It's going to be crazy. Uh, let's go to the Twitter machine and see if we have any tweets here. Uh, I watched the interview with John Jones, and Jones seems genuine. You don't know that he is. You just assume. You're just assuming that this is all. Oh, he's just being genuine. Also, why do you even care? <laughs> you don't know that he is. There's no way to tell if he is. And also, why is it so important that he is? Maybe in his heart of hearts, John Jones is the most honest guy in the world, and he just doesn't know how to tell the world about it. Maybe in his heart of hearts, he's the most duplicitous guy, which would make all of this theater. I'm not interested in the theater of John Jones. I'm just not interested in it. I'm interested in his comments about Daniel Cormier. I'm interested in his comments about um, the UFC. His comments about him and everything else, about, about himself, don't care. Luke, does Rousey's loss to home change your view on the likely winner of a fight between Ronda and Cyborg? It's a good question, you know, because you can say, wow, you know, look at how bad the entry into her takedowns were for Ronda, you know, getting that left hand over the neck or the two hands on the arm, you know, look how, look how, look how much she has to sacrifice to get there against someone who knows how to get away. And I, and I buy all that at the same time, Cyborg's a bit of a plant your feet kind of brawler. She's just not going to show you, she's not going to punch, punch and get away. She's going to punch, punch and plant, you know? Um, and for me, that makes a big difference. Luke, why is it seen that UFC 194 isn't receiving a lot of promotion? Because it's Thanksgiving. It's going to kick into high gear after this. Uh, are you surprised the 115-pound division has been 
included in Tough 23, saying there are, are over 30 fighters on the roster. Well, they got to build it up. I understand that part. One part that got me is there's, there's three weight classes this time. I don't know how that's going to work. But it could just be that they're going to try and do, like, they these are the divisions they need to fill. So they're going to see what they get at the tryouts and then just cut one division before they go to air and then just use two of them. Do you think McGregor can defend Jose Aldo's leg kicks? Um, I don't think he's going to be do, doing a whole lot of leg kick checking. I think he's going to do a whole lot of leg kick eating. The question is, does it really matter? Tell me, we're not talking about your average guy here. Even tough guys like Uriah Faber, who took that beating from Jose Aldo and had, you know, what was the fight where he had two broken hands and he still kept going? Maybe it was the Aldo fight too. I don't remember, but. This is we're talking about another level of mental toughness here. Conor McGregor, I've never seen an athlete kind of like that. Just his 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 will to achieve truly makes a difference in outcomes. Truly, it's nuts. Uh, let's see. Do you think Ben Henderson has what it takes to make a run at welterweight? Not for a title. Why aren't fighters weighed right before fights? Just for info. We're sort of seeing open weight fights. No, I wouldn't say we're seeing open weight fights, but certainly there is a slight difference in uh, what's happening. I would say um, probably because it's just another bureaucratic layer to making fights take place they don't want to have to work through. All right, let's go back to the questions here. We've got a bunch more, not much time left. Uh, Luke, who are you taking for these 10 fights? As you know, I always reserve the right to change my mind before I do my full predictions. Nick Diaz against Robbie Lawler. Probably Robbie at this point. Uh, Tate in a rematch with Zingano. Maybe Tate at this point. Lesnar come back in MMA against Fedor. Lesnar. Uh, Barrow moves to featherweight against Lamas. Ooh, that's a good one. Um... Barrow. Gustafson in a rematch against Rumble Johnson. Another good question. Wow. Um, I don't know. I hadn't thought about that at all. Wow, that's a really good question. Could he really right the wrong the second time? Yeah, I'll go Gustafson. Uh, Anderson Silva against Michael Bisping. I'll go Silva. Me against Dada 5000. Of course, Dada 5000 would wreck me. Jeff Wagenheim, arm wrestling Ariel. I would go with Jeff, but I don't know. Donald Trump against Obama in an octagon. Obama, he's in better shape. Miley Cyrus taking on Kim Kardashian. Well, it's an incredibly stupid question. Probably uh, Miley, though. Someone says some very nice things, which I won't read here. Not because they're not nice, but because you don't care about them. Uh, in terms of a question, I've never seen Jones sound this motivated, and to be honest, candid and pissed off. Um, should DC simply concede the title now? I still think John may be somewhat of a psychopath. He expressed next to no concern for the pregnant victim of his actions, but he damn sure is a bad fighter. Like bad isn't good. It'll be interesting to see where his career goes from here. And if he can genuinely stay out of trouble, I have no doubts about him being able to continue to succeed in the former, but sadly wouldn't be that surprised if he continued to fail in the latter. I think this is my take entirely. I'm not going to be a part of the theater of John Jones, not for a long time. I'm just not, you know. 
I don't know about this this need for this redemption story and this need for to for us for him to be something. John, why can't you say this so you can be this version of you that I want you to be? Not going to do it. Just not going to do it. Um, but I do get the sense, like you do, Mister High Stakes. I do get the sense that you do that competitively. Uh, a fire burns, and um, as long as that's the case, and he is physically coming into his own, and I mean, from the looks of it, you know, we'll see how much looks mean in the end, but from the looks of it, he is going to be a destroyer of men. Is it fair to say if DJ beats Cejudo, the flyweight division is cleared out? Probably. Probably. Uh, possible Fedor opponent. I was thinking about this the other day, man. With Fedor's return less than a month away, have you heard any new rumblings of who Sakaki Barra might face him up against? No. And the one that I thought that it was going to be, the one that I was told it was going to be, but it was just not reliable. I couldn't confirm it. Um, I'm not hearing any rumblings about him anymore either. I don't know what's going to happen, man. It's going to be crazy. Luke, what do you think about Noad Lahat's chances to make top 15 one day? Do you think he has that kind of talent? Uh, I don't, but, you know, we'll see. Uh, World Series of Fighting going the way of Strikeforce and Pride. I'm not going to go into details about their finances. Frankly, I don't care. But is it serious, and could we have them fold in our near future? There are some problems with how their organization is run. And if you haven't read Paul Gift and John Nash's reporting on it, you probably should. Also, if they do fold, will the UFC pick up their fighter contracts? Honestly, I doubt they'd have any interest in their roster outside of Lance Palmer, Marlon Marache, and perhaps David Branch. Most of their big-name fighters are UFC castaways anyway. Would Bellator be more likely to buy them out? So this was a really interesting question. I was having this debate with someone else entirely. Let's take UFC out of the equation because I do think they would try to buy some, but they, they don't have room for a whole lot more. I mean, they're cutting guys, you know. If you combined the World Series of Fighting roster with Bellator roster, you would get something very special. Because when Ali Abdelaziz says, you know, we promote like real competitive fights and real competitive fighters relative to what Bellator is doing, he's right. He is right. If you look at, they don't promote nearly as many fights, of course, but if you look at what World Series of Fighting is trying to do, yeah, they had Nick Newell in there and they signed uh, Phoenix Jones and things like that, but Generally speaking, man, they're trying to hold lightweight tournaments and they're trying to book, you know, Husma Poharis against Jake Shields. You know, they're trying to put on competitive fights between good fighters. And Bellator's trying to do that too. And then they had this, we talked about it before, this promotion within the promotion where it's this Dada 5000 slice, Shamrock Gracie kind of thing. But I guess what I mean to say is that is something that Bellator lacks a little bit. They do have, of course, their Michael Chandlers and their Will Brookses and the Pitbull brothers and everyone else. And these guys are all great. But just hear me out for a second. Imagine if you had all the sideshow stuff that Bellator is going to do to get ratings, but then you added back in Jake Shields and John Fitch. You added back in Justin Gaethje, Justin Gaethje versus Will Brooks, Justin Gaethje versus Michael Chandler. Then you added in Marlon Moraes at, at Bantamweight, right? And then you added in all these Lance Palmer and all these other guys, David Branch, into the Bellator fold. They're all on Spike TV. Think about how much thicker their cards get. Because they had a card, it was a small event, it's not a big deal, but it was headlined by Kato versus Manhoff. And it had definitive action, but Kato is, you know, not particularly great. 
if Bellator had the World Series of Fighting guys that they wanted, and some of the the the, the Dagestani guys as well, that would be a phenomenal upgrade to the quality of their roster. Such that I, I'm not saying that would make them rival UFC. I don't mean that, but it would really make them turn a corner in a way nothing else will for the time being. For the time being, and if World Series of Fighting goes, you know, belly up, and UFC gets some of their guys, which I'm sure they will. Whoever Bellator can get is going to be a benefit to them. Bellator and World Series of Fighting have pivoted in slightly different directions. As a consequence, they have two very different kinds of products. If you can combine them with the power of Spike TV and the backing of Viacom, it, you know, because let's be real, they've got the money on that side. World Series of Fighting just doesn't. Not like that, anyway. You would have something much more formidable than you would have today. It would, it would fill out Bellator in a way that uh, I'm not saying they would change their need to stop using Dada 5000 right away, but it would certainly make um, them as an alter as an alternate to the UFC much more viable, much more uh, robust, much more likely. Which is, of course, why UFC is going to want to try and not let that happen to the extent possible. But look, they're hampered; they're filled to the brim too. So, you know, if World Series of Fighting ever folded, I'm not wishing it on them. I'm just saying, if it happened, you know, we've we've been around. We've seen what happens with MMA organizations. You know, Bellator would be would be uh, in a prime spot to benefit from that in ways UFC really wouldn't be much more beneficial for Bellator to create an alternate product that they can't quite do yet um, relative to UFC. Henry Cejudo drinking game. Luke, have you played the Henry Cejudo drinking game yet? It goes like this. Number one, get your hard alcohol and shot glass and beer and quart glass ready. Two, Download a random Henry Cejudo interview. Three, take a drink for every time he mentions Olympic gold medal. Number four, you win if you can walk in a straight line at the end. I'm going to try that. Uh, Holly Holm striking weakness. This came up in the Pennington fight as well as the Ronda fight. Holm has crisp striking. It can't be denied. But her defense has some problems. Firstly, she doesn't use nearly enough head movement. Secondly, she instinctively uses a lot of defense that would work were she wearing boxing gloves. Alas, she is not, so she gets hit. Not that there's any girl at women's bantamweight that would outstrike her at the moment, but that's only her path to victory. Excuse me, that's her only path to victory. Just saying before Joe Rogan gets too overexcited. Sure, look, if you see things on the tape, you got to acknowledge them. I'll disagree with you about the head movement. She, she, First of all, part of her style is, remember we mentioned this before in the Monday Morning Analyst, nose, knee, toes, straight line, baiting you in, backing up in this kind of way to like to, to, to force a reaction. So she's not doing head off center line in that sense, but she is creating movement for opportunity. I want to sort of note that. Secondly, <coughs> in the fight with Rousey, she didn't need to use a whole lot of head movement because she was winning that outside foot space. She was moving. She was taking big steps out to the side. If I'm taking a big step, my head's going to follow with it. So no, she wasn't, you know, slipping a punch and or she wasn't slipping in head movement like that. And she wasn't showing a ton of looks. She didn't really need to. She needed to be ready for the entry so she could create the angle with her with her feet. Now, I'm not saying additional foot movement would have or additional head movement would have hurt, but it didn't slow her down in that regard. And, and to your point again, she, this is she's not a big foot. Um, she is a big foot moving person. She's not a big head moving person. I'm, I'm not denying these criticisms, but I just wonder also if you know to what extent are they actual liabilities when it comes to fighting. Let's do one more. Luke, you get to pick any MMA fighter in the cage with Carl from The Walking Dead 
and do as much damage to him in one minute as possible, who do you pick? Definitely going to be Cain Velasquez. Carl from The Walking Dead is a reprehensible zero, and I cannot wait until he gets eaten by zombies. What a prick this little kid is. Uppity, mouthy, stupid, sociopathic, dead-eyed, malcontent, who deserves nothing more than to be slowly eaten um, by the undead. Can't wait till he dies. Worst character ever. What a dirtbag. Overestimates his own abilities. Rarely ever contributes. He's basically the barnacle on the ship that is that is Rick and Michonne and the rest of the people trying to hold things together over there in Alexandria. What a jerk job he is. I cannot wait until he dies. And I wish Cain Velasquez would not only beat him within an inch of his stupid life and then feed him to zombies, but then give him a haircut uh, as well because it'll be nothing worse than him turning to the undead, rocking that, uh, you know, the Ruddles haircut that he's resurrected for for this for this show. What a what a terrible lout he is. All right. With that, I hope everyone had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Uh, please don't get in any fist fights at Target. That should never be on your LinkedIn life resume, right? Like if you don't if you lose out to the tug of war with the mom over the 32-inch Vizio, just let her have it, okay? Um, Let's see. We'll have coverage tomorrow of UFC Fight Night 79. My predictions are going to come out about 30 minutes and uh, all that kind of good stuff. So thank you so much for watching on this off day. Oh, there is no Luke Thomas radio show today on SiriusXM. We'll be back next Friday. We've been preempted for um, college football. Um, So this is all there is for us today. Thank you so much. Stay safe. Do not drink and drive this weekend. If you're traveling on Sunday, Be patient. You'll get home. Love you all. Thank you so much. Until next time, you know what time it is. Stay frosty.